As you uh, find your seats, go ahead and track down a copy of God's Word. Begin to locate the book of Habakkuk. Or if you're from the other side of the pond, Habakkuk, whatever suits you. Habakkuk chapter 2 this morning. Feel free to use table of contents to track that down. If you don't have a Bible, there's some uh, black hardback Bibles under the seat around you. If you, as always, if you need a Bible, please take one of those as our gift to you. Or if you know someone who would uh, receive those. Um, you know, uh, just a, a bit of a side note before we jump in here in light of uh, current events. Just uh, can't help but reflect back on the sermon from last week from Habakkuk from the end of chapter 1 into chapter 2 about how do we respond when with the why questions when things happen. And that was what Habakkuk helped us with last week. Not that this week doesn't have relevance, but just to see uh, how this is building in us uh, truth. So Habakkuk chapter 2, the game plan is to cover verses 6 through uh, 20 this morning. Uh, you know, there, there's a natural tendency that arises in us as humans when bad things happens, uh, happens. And I think it's, um, you know, certainly evident uh, right now when, when bad things arise, when trouble uh, comes, we tend to react by blaming. Uh, we tend to react by blaming uh, everyone or anyone, uh, just generally seeking to uh, find someone uh, to blame. In our minds, blame has to fall on someone. It's got to land uh, somewhere. We've seen that play out in the unspeakable tragedy this week in Texas. Why did that event happen or why did it happen and uh, in the way that it that it did? And how do we explain that and who is to blame for that? Uh, for one side of the political aisle, it's one thing. For the other side of the political aisle, it's something uh, totally uh, different. For some, it's one person or one group's fault. For the other, it's another person's or another group's uh, fault. Uh, we see this same tendency play out in situation after situation, in relationship after relationship. Uh, the problem is never me or my group or my view. It's always them or their view or their group. The problem always rests, the blame always rests on someone else. We see this manifest from an early age if we have kids. If you have more than one kid, you have seen this manifest itself from the time they can do uh, anything. It's always the other sibling's fault. We see it play out in marriage. We see it play out in friendships. Okay, The other person's faults are always primary. And then it translates into broader society, into politics, obviously, and everything in between. So it starts from early age and it just gets worse as we get older. Now, in saying this, I'm not trying to insinuate or say in any way that there are not certain people to blame in certain situations. Okay, Certainly in a lot of situations, there may be one person or one group uh, that is to bear the majority of the blame. Uh, we'd have to go situation by situation uh, to, to figure that out, and we're not going to do that today. It's not like, give me your situation and let's figure out uh, who's to blame. Uh, here's my point for right now. Our gut reaction is to blame, okay? Find out who's wrong and to figure out why it's not us. And what I want to get across is that even if we need to dive into a matter and find the root cause for that, for the sake of moving forward in a healthy direction, even if that needs to take place, and it often does, I think we always need to do a little self-examination in the midst of whatever the circumstances are. Even if, very indirectly, we've had some uh, some blame, we bear some blame in that. So that's my point, that 
We always, in the midst of whatever relational problem or cultural problem or whatever may be going on, it's always an opportunity for a little self-examination in us and to find maybe we are, maybe even very indirectly, at fault in some way. Because there's this belief, there's also this belief in us that if we can find the evil person, that if we can find the person at fault in every situation, if we could punish them or correct them or maybe even get rid of them, then things would be better. Okay, if we could just get rid of that person, then things would not go south again and things would improve and they would never be bad again. And that may, in fact, be true for an isolated moment temporarily. But there's an an, an error embedded in this way of thinking. Um, we forget that every single one of us have the seeds in our own hearts to be what we see in evil people. Okay, every one of us have the seeds of evil in in all of our hearts. Okay, when we see evil in the world or a bad person in a particular situation, we forget that what has been manifest in and through them, the seeds of that reside in our hearts. One author said the the line dividing between good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And we forget of what we're capable of. And we forget that it's only through the grace of God that we don't all act all the time on the evil side of the line that cuts through our hearts. So you might say in every situation there's need for humility or there's need for humble uh, reflection. Where might I be wrong? What faults might I bear, even if some in some indirect way? What can I learn? How can I grow? How can I change? What am I being taught? Okay, through everything from relationships that have strain to cultural problems to tragedies. You could even put it this way. Am I going to react to a given situation in pride, believing that I am automatically right? Or am I going to humbly reflect, realizing I may, in fact, be wrong in some regard? I think if we put it broadly, that, that's how what I'm getting at. Am I going to, in a situation, any given situation, react in pride, believing that I am automatically right? Or am I going to humbly reflect believing that I may, in fact, be wrong in some way. I think the text before us and the truths it contains, I think it would be easy that as we read this to react pridefully, to say there's really nothing in here that relates to me. There's the, this is, I mean, if you've read ahead, you're going, I don't know how this actually relates or applies uh, to us. I think it would be easy for us to react pridefully. You have this sort of victim-oppressor dichotomy in this text. You have the, this notion of judgment upon evil and therefore vindication of the victim. And, and, and because of this tendency that re- resides in us, we will automatically read ourselves into the story as what? The victim. Okay, there's no way we're the oppressor. We are the victim. And if we are truly the victim, there's, there's still a word of warning here to us. Word of warning about judgment that is to come, but there's also a word of warning, even if we are the victim, about what we could be, about the fact that we, we could be the oppressor at some point, even if we are the victim in a given uh, situation, because that dividing line between good and evil sort of cuts through all of our hearts. So 
Let me set this up uh, for us so hopefully uh, we can see how this uh, plays out. Uh, if you're here for the first time or miss, or if you just missed the, the past two weeks, so we're on week three of a four-week series in uh, Habakkuk. So Habakkuk, little-known prophet, uh, only three chapters, got a really powerful punch to him, though. Uh, it's kind of that crisp area in your Bible you might not have uh, come across very often. And so, as I mentioned, we're covering verses 6 through 20 in chapter 2, but the verses are obviously not isolated. There's context to give these verses meaning. Uh, Habakkuk as a whole, I didn't really think about it uh, until this week, sort of reads like a journal, like a prophet's journal. If you were to find Habakkuk's journal, uh, this is this is kind of his personal encounter with God and what God is uh, saying to him, even though God does say, as we saw last week, to write it down and then send runners. Um, Habakkuk lived at a time when things were not going well. Okay, Things are not going well for God's people. They've fallen on hard times, mainly due to poor leadership. And it's pretty much just moral chaos. You, you read the first chapter and, and you just sort of see moral chaos in the land at this point. And Habakkuk has had enough. And he's been calling on God to respond and to judge his own people. Habakkuk, a prophet of God, is saying, I want you to judge your own people. And based on what we saw in chapter one, he's been doing this for a while and God has not been responding and then God finally speaks, and Habakkuk probably wishes that he wouldn't have spoken. So Habakkuk complains, as the book put it, as it's framed in the book. Um, but these are godly complaints. And his first complaint is twofold. Why are you not responding to me? And why are you not taking care of the issue that I'm complaining about with your own people? And God's response that we have seen is, I hear you. I'm going to act, but you're not going to like it. I hear you, I'm going to act, but you're not going to like it. In the second half of chapter 1, God tells Habakkuk he's going to use the nation of Babylon. They've probably never been a more ruthless nation. He's going to use them to judge his own people, to punish his own people. And this just prompts more questions from Habakkuk and leads to a second complaint, which I think is understandable. Complaint number two God, how can you use a more wicked nation to punish a less wicked nation? I know we're bad, and I was complaining about how bad we are, but they're much worse. So I'm not sure how you can do this. And does this mean that, yeah, you're going to, you're going to, we're going to get justice. Okay, God's people are going to get justice for their wickedness, but what about the Babylonians? Are you going to judge them? To which God responds, yes, they will not get off, not in the least. What we looked at last week at the beginning of chapter two, God makes clear that Babylon will get what they deserve. It may seem slow, but it's coming. And in outlining this in the first part of chapter two, God makes clear what the issue is with Babylon. In summary, their issue is pride, pride that can never be satisfied. Verse four, if you look back at that, their soul is puffed up. Okay, we looked at that last week. Verse five lays out how the pride that they have will never be placated. They will never be at rest. Their greed is unending. They gather and conquer and collect, but there's no ultimate satisfaction for them. And what God sets up for us that we looked at last week, which is all contained in verse four alone, is this comparison between a life of pride in a life of faith or faithfulness between those that are proud and sort of turn away from God and those that are faithful and follow God. And they look completely different. 
That's what he set up last week. And now we're about to get the detail in verses 6 through 20 of what the prideful life looked like. He's going to get very specific about what a life driven by prideful dissatisfaction looked like, which implies, okay, it's implicit in this that the opposite is a life of faith. So very specific on a, this is what it looks like, this is what a life of prideful dissatisfaction looks like, and the assumed opposite is a life of faithfulness. And we'll kind of see that before we get to the end. So we're about to read this section, and what you're going to see are five woes, okay? Five woes. You may, you may have, you know, a, a subheading there in your Bible that says, woe to the Chaldeans. Remember Chaldeans, Babylon, it's the same thing. Okay, And this is framed, starting in verse 6, this is framed as sort of a taunting song being sung by those that the Babylonians have oppressed or will oppress. More or less, it's laying out what Babylon did or will do and the consequences that will one day befall them. And it's, it's being sung about them from those that they have oppressed. Okay, that's what's happening. And what's our tendency going to be as we read this and unpack it? It's it's all their fault. It's all on them. They get what they deserve. The Chaldeans were brutal. The Babylonians were brutal. And that's true. But if that's the way we approach the text, we're going to miss any application to us. We're going to easily miss how this could be us, that we could be the ones doing this. We're going to read the sort of heinous manifestation of sin in the Babylonians, and we're going to miss the root principles behind why they were doing it and what they were doing. So what we have here, five woes, five reasons, you may say, that God judges Babylon. But what we need to see is five woes or five reasons God would judge any nation or five reasons God would judge any individual. That's what we need to see here. We need to see the difference between the path of pride and the path of faith. Okay, the life Filled with prideful dissatisfaction and the life of faithfulness to God that finds satisfaction in God. That's what we need to see. So instead of simply seeing five woes pronounced upon Babylon, hopefully we'll see five warnings for every one of us, every nation, every person. All right. With that, let's read the text and dive in. Picking up in verse six, chapter two, this is the word of God. Shall not all these take up their taunt? So these being the nations they've oppressed. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him, him being Babylon, with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that people's labor, labor merely in fire, for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
Verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbor drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. The last woe actually starts in verse 18. What profit is an idol when it, its maker has it shaped a metal image, a teacher of lies for its maker trust in his own creation when he makes speechless idols? Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple that all the earth keeps silence before him. All right. A lot of light and fluffy stuff here on Memorial Day weekend. Um, simple outline for the day. Just going to walk right through the text. We've got five warnings playing off these five woes and then followed by four exhortations. Okay. Five warnings, four exhortations, and uh, they'll be on the screens and I'll give them to you as you go. First five warnings. Uh, again, these are framed as as woes. Okay, you may go through real quick if you didn't already and just underline woe. That's, so you see where each woe is in the section. Okay, there's multiple verses for each section. Um, and the only one, the only woe that doesn't start with the word woe is the last one. It starts in verse 18, but the woe is in verse 19. Uh, and again, this is a song sung by all those that were being oppressed. Okay, all those that are being oppressed. And woes are laments, okay? They're laments for judgment. So this is a remnant of oppressed people lamenting to God, asking God to judge and really foretelling how God will judge the Babylonians. And just something to uh, note sort of structurally here. Within each of the woes, okay, there's a description of the evil that's committed and then there's a pronouncement of the judgment. And you'll see sort of, you know, the, 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 the judgment fits the crime, so to speak, as you go through this. For instance, I'll just give you an example. In the first woe, so Babylon had plundered others, and now they will be plundered. Okay? Alright? What goes around comes around, in a, in a sense. Punishment fits the crime. We're not gonna be able to unpack all of that, but when you read through this, you'll see the crime and the punishment or the judgment in each of, uh, the woes. So, overall, God's punishment is just. It follows what what they're doing. All right, let's walk through these. First warning, uh, we see a warning against excessive greed. Excessive uh, greed. Seven and eight. Uh, so this is in verses seven and eight. Uh, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Talks about verse eight, because you have plundered many nations. Uh, what we see here is nothing more than theft, stealing. Okay, stealing to gain wealth for yourself. That's what's being talked about here. Okay, verse seven heaps up what is not his own. Verse eight plunders many nations, theft and stealing what is not your own for your own uh, gain. Now, I'm guessing, but I I could be wrong, but I'm guessing no one in here has plundered another nation. I'm going to say that's that sin is not on us. I doubt that's on any of our resumes. Could be. You could correct me if I'm wrong. Um, we, we're, we're able to look at the history of maybe our country and other countries and find this. 
And there's maybe reason to pause and to consider that. And we'll talk about some of it in a minute and just some of the other woes. But personally, I doubt that any of, any of us have sacked and plundered another nation. So we need to look at the roots of what's going on here. The principle behind the specific action. And we see pride that's never satisfied that leads to excessive greed. Okay, Prideful dissatisfaction that leads to excessive greed. You think we can find anything there? We've probably never robbed someone's house either. So maybe it doesn't go to that point where, okay, I've broken into somebody's house. I took their car or whatever. Maybe we've never walked into a bank and robbed that. But maybe we have stolen in a myriad of ways. Maybe we've defrauded the company we work for in some way. Took things that weren't, wasn't, they, they weren't personally ours and we used them. We used company resources in a way that we weren't supposed to. We didn't actually work the hours that we got Paid for. We didn't actually carry out the responsibilities that we got paid for. Maybe we mistreated customers, misled insurance companies, made fraudulent claims, cheated on taxes. You could just go on and on and on and see the ways in which we may have stolen from other people. Stealing is much broader than jacking someone's car. Anytime that we take something in some form that is not rightfully ours, Or if we benefit unfairly or unjustly, we may be stealing. Verse 8 says that you will lose all that you have taken in an unjust way. Proverbs 10.2 backs this up and says, Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit. Can you see any way in your life that you've allowed Pride, your desire to be all about you in the advance of you, do you see any way that that has led to excessive greed and in some way benefiting unjustly from others? That's the first warning, excessive greed. Next warning, prideful injustice, prideful injustice. Verse nine, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. What you'll see between uh, really all of these, but particularly the first three, a lot of similarities, a lot of overlap in these woes. Okay, this this one sort of expands the first one. We're seeing people again being treated unjustly. We see this happening specifically so that the Babylonians can gain security, as it says, security in the world. This picture of having a nest on high. It's a picture of an eagle building his nest up on a cliff, safe from Trouble, you see there, end of verse 9, to be safe from the reach of harm. So it's unjust gain, treating others unjustly that you may gain security and safety from the way, whatever you're getting from them or the way you're treating them. Our pride turns us toward ourselves in a way that our security becomes ultimate, that it's all about us. We get so concerned with our own security that it's to the detriment of others' security. In a way, our security ends up being built on the back of others. Okay, We step over, we mistreat others to put ourselves in a better position. Backick's warning in our day might be generally that you don't make your wealth or living through unjust practices. Okay, It's a just weights, just measures in the way you do business. Work to make an honest living without... In any way, destroying the livelihoods of others. Don't secure, don't get security for yourself at the expense of others. Can't even fathom all the different ways that may play out. 
I do realize, particularly living in the contracting world, in the construction world, that there's a tendency to let legalities rule. And I know this would apply in a lot of places in that we'll justify doing something just because it's legal. Well, the legal system allows me to do it. Well, simply because it's legal doesn't mean it's right before God. Okay, you have a higher standard than just the legal law of the land. They don't ask, is it just in the land? Is it just before God? Is it good for others? You just think for a moment how this woe in particular might apply to the nation in which we live. Okay, a lot of conversation over the past few years about race in our country. Okay. So we obviously live in a, in a country scarred by race. We're in a city right now scarred by racial issues. And this is a common heritage for a lot of nations, not just ours, okay? We just see the news in our country, all right? Slavery, for, it, for instance, has built a lot of nations, not just the United States. Slavery has built a lot of nations. But just consider what, what a great country this is historically. And think about the principles upon which this country was founded, even if there were some contradictions there in the beginning. Think about all the good that the United States of America has done. However, much of this country, particularly early on, was built by the blood of slaves, on the backs of slaves. The security of this country was founded in many ways on the oppression of other people. Image bearers of God enslaved for the security of others. And it's a bit haunting to read this text that the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Basically, even the structures in which you trust, the structures that will built through injustice, those themselves cry out for justice. In a, in a sense, they are a reminder that justice will come. This text says evil gain brings shame on your house and leads to a forfeiting of life. Woe to him who gets evil gain. So be warned against excessive greed and prideful injustice. Number three, be warned against useless violence. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquities. You see the commonality, how overlapping these are. You see the sin here of hurting others to gain power for yourself. Babylon was known. They had a reputation for cruelty. Inconceivable crimes against those that they attacked. Why? Because they were greedy for power. They wanted power. It's hard not to see the similarities in the war between Russia and Ukraine right now. Just see so many similarities in that. The hard part might be to see how in the world, would this, how does this apply to us? Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Like how, how does that land on us in particular? We may or may not physically hurt people to gain power or control for ourselves. But what about the things that we say, the way we position ourselves to get in a position of power over others, whether it's what we might say about them that's to put them down so that we're elevated above Think about the ways that husbands seek to gain power in their home. Certainly a lot of instances where physicality is used in that, but sometimes it's verbal and emotional. Really, anytime you hurt another person to increase your power in a relationship, you are committing a form of violence against that person. 
Think about it again in terms of nations. Okay, A little broader than just the United States. It is hard to find a country or a civilization on earth that wasn't built in some way at the expense of others. Look at the pyramids in Egypt. Look at the Roman Empire. Look at the slavery that was involved to build so many nations. If you know world history, then it's easy to read how certain peoples mistreated other peoples for their own gain. It's like a universal sin. Building our human accomplishments on the injustice and violence done to others. Just trace it throughout history. It's not as if the United States is some anomaly in the way it was founded. And what's God's implied judgment here in this woe? All your efforts will come to nothing. Verse 13. It is not from the Lord of hosts that the peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for what? For nothing. Why? Verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Verse 13 is painting a picture of the futility of all that's being accomplished through violence. All of it's just going to be met with fire. For the Babylonians, they thought that they were building a world empire that would last forever. It lasted a hundred years. Here's one undeniable reality of history. Empires come, empires go. Empires rise, empires fall. There's only one kingdom that will last. According to verse 14, it's God's kingdom. Countries may grasp for power. Individuals may grasp for power. We all in some way may be trying to build our own kingdom. But the principle remains the same. It's all in vain. Only God's kingdom will remain forever. Here's a principle from this in the words of an author that I think is worth writing down. He says, all work not serving God's purpose is futile work. Good only for the flames of history forgotten. All work not serving God's purpose is futile work, good only for the flames of history forgotten. This is a point where we may want to consider the direction of our patriotism. So it's good to be patriotic. Certainly reasons, good earthly reasons to be patriotic. Tomorrow's a holiday where I hope our patriotism shines in all the best ways. But does our patriotism for our earthly kingdom, the one in which we live, outpace our patriotism for our heavenly kingdom, the one that will never go away. Remember, as Christians, we're dual citizens, okay? But our ultimate citizenship is where? Here or somewhere else? It's somewhere else, okay? We're dual citizens. So does our patriotism here outpace our patriotism of the other kingdom that will last forever? One kingdom is temporary, the other is eternal. Be warned against useless violence. Number four, fourth woe, fourth warning, vile exploitation. This one starts in verse 15, gets a bit graphic. Woe to him who gets his neighbor drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Uh, To sum that up, be warned against taking advantage of others to gain pleasure for yourself. It seems that Babylon had a certain tactic To be able to take advantage of others, I think most of you can uh, read into that without me giving the explanation for the younger ears uh, here this morning. Uh, Probably uh, also not hard to see how this is still a tactic in our day. Maybe not as much with nations taking over other nations as much as individuals taking advantage of individuals. 
And I think exploitation can happen in a lot of other ways than just what we see here. You know, it's kind of hard as you dive into this woe to, to figure out whether it's literal or metaphorical. I think it's probably a little bit of both. Uh, generally, it's just you have one people exploiting another people. It's really no wonder if you, if you just, just that woe alone and you dive into the depths of what Babylon was like. It is no wonder that when you get to the book of Revelation, Babylon becomes the name for all the worldly systems that are opposed to God. You see why Babylon kind of gets thrown under the bus when you get to the end of the book. Now, there's an added piece in this woe that's really interesting. Okay, and I wanted to kind of skate around this and maybe I still will skate around it a little bit. But verse 16 is a pronouncement of judgment. But verse 17 adds another dimension along with judgment in this woe. It appears that Babylon had a bit of a scorched earth approach, as you may say, when they came in. All right. Again, we, we see similarities of this in Ukraine. Sounds a lot like ISIS. If you were tracking what ISIS was doing a few years ago, it just sounds like scorched earth. In verse 17, this reference to Lebanon, this is actually a reference to the trees of Lebanon. So to, to reference Lebanon would have been synonymous with the trees of Lebanon. We see this throughout the Old Testament. And then you have in verse 17 this reference to the destruction of beasts. Okay, Basically, Babylon is coming in and destroying the land and the animals. Just Not just brutality towards people, but brutality towards creation itself. Now, to be clear, this is not God's word saying you can't cut down a tree or kill an animal. So you loggers and deer hunters are okay, I think. This is a picture of the mistreatment of creation. Or an all-out assault on creation. The thoughtless and useless destruction of created resources. There's another sermon here for sure, but this is a reminder. You go back to Genesis 1 and 2, and we were given dominion over creation. We are put as stewards over God's creation. It exists for our good, not our misuse. And before you start to think that I'm an unpatriotic environmentalist based on what I've said already, I don't want to say more than the text says. And there's a lot more to say from the Bible. God is very clear here that judgment will come and not just for the blood of man, but for what's done to the earth. Verse 17 says this will one day overwhelm you. I mentioned Genesis 1 and 2, that we're stewards over creation. Proverbs 2.10, whoever is righteous, we want to be in that category, right? We want to be in the righteous camp. Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of beasts. But the mercy of the wicked is cruel. Whoever is righteous has regard for the life of his beasts, but the mercy of the wicked is cruel. Here's as far as I'll take it today. Okay, don't have time to go much further on this. This is God's creation. He said it was good and therefore his people should take pause and seek to understand what God has to say about our relationship to his creation. Let's not be too quick to dismiss every concern for creation as liberal. Maybe just some of it is actually biblical. But we probably need to go to here to find out again. Are we just going to quickly dismiss things is not our fault. Got nothing to do there. That's not me. I'm good. Or are we going to seek? Is there something for me to learn? Is there any blame that I need to bear 
in that. So, let's not just dismiss everything as liberal. Maybe some of it's actually biblical. That, that's, as, that's, that's as close to the edge of controversy as I'm going to get today, okay? Because I need to move on. All questions concerning our stance on climate change and environmental care go to Kyle Walker, all right? So, you want to know church position on climate change? He's the guy that prayed at the beginning. All right, final woe, maybe the pinnacle one. Finally, be warned against rampant idolatry. Rampant idolatry. Verse 19, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Verse 18, make sure that we're clear that he's talking about idolatry. What prophets is an idol, according to verse 18? The implied answer, none. There is no prophet from an idol. Romans 125, you can write this down, makes clear what idolatry is. Worship and serving the, worshiping and serving the created rather than the creator. Okay, if you had to sum it up. And that's made clear here. Verse 18 basically says that someone makes an idol with his hands, which is logically just trusting yourself because you made it. You make some with your hands and go, there's my idol, I'm gonna worship that, so therefore I'm, I know what's going on, therefore I'm worshiping myself. You are trusting what you created rather than the creator. Idolatry, simply put, is trusting something, someone other than God, and it typically circles back around to us every time. We can usually trace any idolatry, it just comes right back around uh, to self. And we see the futility of this laid out in this text. I think it's, I think it's Isaiah 44, I may have the text wrong, I think it's Isaiah 44 uh, along with this, where it's almost like you hear God's sarcasm when it comes to idolatry. It's like he's just mocking idolatry for what it is. Idols are man-made in some way. Therefore, you're saying that what you make is more trustworthy than the one that made you. And then, though idols are speechless, as it says here, they still tell lies. Meaning you are, you're brought into something false and deceptive when you get into idol worship. So in a way, they are inherently teaching lies, but they're also at the same time speechless. Meaning idols are nothing. They have no breath in them. They don't speak. They can't hear. They can't guide. They can't save. In the end, it's just you looking at you and looking at man instead of to God. The judgment upon idolatry here is that you ultimately be disappointed and deceived. Because there is nothing of any true or lasting value. There's really nothing at all. Why was Babylon so driven by excessive greed, prideful injustice, useless violence, and vile exploitation because of rampant idolatry? They ultimately worshipped themselves. And the God of self demanded gratification at all cost. They did all of that other stuff because of rampant idolatry. That's why the God of self demanded gratification at all costs. Therefore, you get everything else. To play off the words of Jesus in Matthew 16 or 26... Man's way is to gain the whole world and to lose his soul. That's man's way. Gain the whole world and lose your soul. All right. What time is it? All right. Before we run out of time, let's, let's see how we uh, might respond to this. Okay. How might we respond to this? That, that's at least an overview of the five warnings, five words. A lot more in those, but let's 
let's see if we can figure out what to do with them, at least on a high level. Hopefully this will be helpful in some way. There, I, I think you can go each, each of those woes and find so many specific ways in which to apply this to your own hearts. I've tried to hint at some, lob some things out there that hopefully uh, would uh, stick. But here's some general exhortations that are hopefully helpful along the way. Uh, first, in light of these warnings, in light of the truths contained in each, war, let, in each woe, let us be humble. Okay, let us be humble. This kind of goes back to what I said at the beginning of uh, the sermon. When bad things happen, when evil rises, is there any room in us for humble reflection? Any room whatsoever for humble reflection? Or is it just, I want to kill you tweet, you know, where you just, you just, you're, you're hitting the button and you're trying to blow somebody up on the other side that's reading that thinking my viewpoint is perfect. Be humble. Do you see any way in which you might be contributing to whatever it is? If there are problems within our homes, in our churches, at our works, with our friends, if there are problems in this country, is it at all our fault? Do we own any of the blame whatsoever? Really quick, think about how does a believer... Respond in humility to this or how does a believer respond to this text? How does an unbeliever respond to this text for the believer? You can look at this. This is a warning text. This is a self-examination kind of text. As one pastor said, Habakkuk's woes are instructive wisdom for the believer. In each woe, the lack of faith takes the form of relying on oneself instead of God. So for the believer, judgment's been handled. Okay, If you didn't know that, judgment has been handled. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you don't read this and go, I'm done, I'm judged. You read this and go, Christ took this for me. Okay, There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The judgment of God to your sins as a believer has been satisfied in Christ. So in part, the response to this text is gratitude. Thank you, God. I see the seeds of these sins in my heart. Thank you, God, that you saved me in Christ. But it's also a call to reflection and repentance. Okay, we need to be the first to humbly reflect. It's saying I'm not perfect. I know how sinful I am. And I at least see indicators of these things in my heart. And I want to figure out how I've contributed in any way to whatever's going on around me. And I confess, I turn, I trust, and I think again. So for the believer, this is just one of the many passages that serves as a mirror. You just put it up, look at your life in it, see what's there that needs to be fleshed out. What what is it that you need to work on? What needs to be matured, sanctified? What else needs to be exposed? And you you humbly respond in faithfulness for the unbeliever. What's the response? What's the approach? This text is about warning. This is a warning about judgment. I mean, it's, it's, it's flat out. There's no way to get around. It's a warning about judgment. It's a warning about what comes to those who trust in themselves and not in God. It's a call to trust in Jesus. It's a call to humility. Okay. It's a call to humility. You think, think about it. You don't, you don't really find Jesus apart from humility. Because it takes humility to say, I need somebody to save me. I need, I need help. So you don't really find Jesus apart from humility. You see, Habakkuk makes clear here that God is just. And God's justice against all the ways that, that our sins line up with the Babylonians. We just, God is just toward those sins. And those sin, that judgment doesn't evaporate if we just say we're sorry. 
If we're just somehow like, okay, I, I see that my contribution to that and, and, and violence done in the world or these bad things that happen, uh, I'm really sorry about that. That justice doesn't evaporate. One of two things has to happen with God's justice. Either A, it's going to fall on you if you turn from God. When you meet him, it's going to come on you. Or B, it's going to fall on Jesus because you trust in him. Those are the two options. God's justice doesn't evaporate if you're sorry. It falls on you or it falls on Christ. Those are the options. The only hiding place from the judgment of God is the mercy of God found in Jesus. The question for you, if you're not there, is in this moment, will you turn from God or will you turn to him? Turn from him, his judgment awaits you. Turn to him, his judgment is satisfied. Turn away from him, judgment awaits you. Turn to him, justice is satisfied. The only way to get to God is through Jesus. To see him as the only means of salvation from the judgment of God do your sins. If you have questions on that, no more important question to ask before you leave today. I'd love to chase that down. That's not clear. Pray that the response for the Christian and the non-Christian is humility. Humble reflection. Okay? Humble reflect. What, what sins do I see in my heart? What needs do I see? Am I trusting in Christ or is judgment coming my way? First and foremost, be humble. Second, be hopeful. Be hopeful. There's a lot in this text that's distressing and a lot in the world right now that is distressing. But this text gives a lot of reasons, even amidst distress, to be hopeful. And I think verses 14 and verse 20 just highlight this reality. When it seems like evil's winning, when God appears silent, don't forget, verse 14, the earth will be, will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's going to happen one day. It's in the process of happening now. Anybody go to the beach this past week or headed to the beach? Walk, walk out on the beach, look at those waters, and it's, there's just no end, right? Even at the Gulf, you know there's land out there somewhere, but you cannot see it. It's just vast. God's glory will cover the earth one day in that form. That, that's the illustration it is using. And then don't forget, according to verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple, meaning he's sovereign. He's still in control. He's on his throne. He's not asleep. It may be a painful journey. We talked about this last week a little bit. It may be a painful journey, but God is working toward a glorious end. It's really a summary exhortation of all that we looked at last week. When things don't make sense, when we don't know what to do, what do we do? We lean on the character of God. We lean on his character. We continue to go back to that. This text just reminds us of that. So you want more on this point? Go back and listen to the sermon from last week. Back struggling to make sense of all of this. And he's just reminding us again. God is still there. God is still working. There's a glorious end coming. God will win. Justice will prevail. He's still in control. Next, be faithful. Be faithful. So no exhortations in the text, no imperatives that tell us do this. But faithfulness is implied. I said at the beginning, what's laid out here is what a life of prideful dissatisfaction looks like, which implies that the contrast is a life of faith. Life of faith is pretty much just the opposite of the warnings. An implied contrast between God's way and man's way. You may put it that way. Just think about it quickly with me, okay? Just follow the woes. Think about the woes we just covered and then how we're exhorted to live in the rest of Scripture. So we're to serve God instead of self by giving rather than stealing. 
Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, do, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Ephesians 4, 28. We're to, we're to be marked by generosity, not greed. We're to serve God instead of self by practicing integrity rather than injustice, because integrity brings about security. Do you realize that? According to God, integrity brings about security. Okay, We think money brings security. Integrity does. Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his ways crooked will be found out. Proverbs 10, 9. So we're marked by honesty and a concern for righteousness instead of justice. We're to serve God instead of self by acting with compassion rather than violence. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Philippians 2.13, love your neighbor as yourself. Luke 10.27, be marked by mutual care and not violence. We're to serve God instead of self by serving rather than exploiting. By serving rather than exploiting. But whomever would be great among you must be your Servant, Matthew 10, Matthew 20, 26. Be marked by mutual encouragement and building up rather than exploitation of others. Then the last one, we're to serve God instead of self by worshiping him instead of idols. Tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. First Thessalonians 1, 9. Be marked by the worship of the one true God instead of the worship of ourselves. So don't miss the contrast here. The warnings are an implicit call to faithfulness, to the opposite life being laid out. There's also another call here to faithfulness, not just implicitly that we're to live opposite of this. Okay, but there's a there's another call to faithfulness in the section we covered last week in verse two. God says what? Write this down, make it plain so he may run who reads it. God wants this word pronounced to everybody. He's telling Habakkuk. Get it written down, make it plain so that the runner can read it and everybody hears about it. Okay, 6 through 20 falls within what he wants everybody to hear about. He wants it to be plain that judgment is coming. Everybody needs to hear that judgment is coming. So part of faithfulness for us is not just living a life contrary to that life marked by prideful dissatisfaction, but to warn people that God's judgment is coming upon lives marked by prideful dissatisfaction. So faithfulness is not simply self-serving, but it's also another way of being selfless. So this text tells us how to live through implication. You live the opposite way, but it also tells us that the world needs to be warned about what's coming if you are leading a life of prideful dissatisfaction. Okay, last exhortation. Be humble, be hopeful, be faithful, and finally be patient. Be patient. This goes back to last week as well. Last week was an intro to this week. According to verse 3, the vision awaits its appointed time, what we looked at last week. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. Even if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God says to Habakkuk there in verse 3, You know, the Babylonians experienced a lot of success before they were brought to destruction. Very successful before they were brought to destruction. The faithful life that's in contrast to the prideful life here is not a life that will automatically yield earthly success. So you can't walk away saying, 
He told me that if I live opposite of this, that if I'm not pridefully dissatisfied and stepping over others to get what I want, if I'm just a good person that treats others kindly, then things will go well for me. The word does not promise that the faithful life may not yield earthly success. And the faithful life may not be yielded from earthly struggle. I said this last week, there is no promise that difficulty will be taken away in life. Temporary healing is not promise. Immediate banishment of evil and pain and suffering is not promised. It may, not be, it may be granted, but it's not promised. What is promised is ultimate healing, ultimate justice, eternal success. Ultimately, eternally, things will be corrected. Things will be vindicated. The righteous in Christ will prevail. God will win. The right will conquer over wrong. All that is promised in its appointed time. Wait for it. It will not lie. If it seems slow, it will surely come. It will not delay. In the meantime, patient, faithful endurance is a necessity. Be humble. Be hopeful, be faithful, be patient. I've said along the way that there's a journey in Habakkuk. But you also have Habakkuk going on the journey. Okay, we're following a journey of truth in a sense from from fear to faith. Okay, from from worry to worship. But we see Habakkuk go this journey himself. We're going to see next week where he landed and we'll see that regardless of how perplexed he was at the injustice and evil in the world, he's able to finally say, though good doesn't seem to come in the immediate, he's able to say, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my my salvation. The text ends, the book ends with him saying, I'm not sure if good's going to come in the immediate, yet I'm going to rejoice. So. Journey's not done yet. Hopefully you'll show up next week and we'll get to take the rest of it. See how Habakkuk not only takes us on the journey, but he takes us with him as he goes himself. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and how your spirit works through your word to sanctify your people. We pray that that would be the case. That you would work through truth to clarify things for us. You would work through our confusion and our fear and even if we're perplexed to help us to see that you're still there, you're still in control, that you can be trusted. Father, we pray that you would help us to take the journey that Habakkuk took from fear to faith, from worry to worship. So sanctify us, Father. Your word is truth. Sanctify us in truth. For our good, for the good of those around us, the good of those that don't know you, the good of those living a life of prideful dissatisfaction. Sanctify us for for their good and ultimately for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.